0: And so the section we're in today is his section where he's addressing rights. He's, saying, get, uh, the, he's talking about the value of laying down their rights. He's talked about how they need to lay down their rights that they have legally to take one another to court and not handle disputes among believers in the court. He's talked about how married individuals have given up their rights to one another. He's talked about how some should give up their rights to even be married so that they can preach the gospel more effectively. He's talked about how some who eat meat that's been offered to idols should give up their right to eat that meat so that they can uh, be conscious of their brothers with a with a weaker with a weaker conscience, those who are convicted about eating that meat. And Paul now himself up as an example and he's sharing all the rights that he's given up. So in the first 14 verses he's talked he's talking about the right of being paid. To, uh, ...to serve as an apostle. Um, so, in 1 first, in first Corinthians 9, 1-14, uh, through 14, he's just talked about that... ...and he's, he's made such a convincing argument. Now, in 1 Corinthians 9, 15-23, the passage that we will be in this morning... ...he has to explain that he's not actually asking for these rights. He's got to tell them why he's willing to give up the right to be paid... ...and the right to be married... And that's where we're at in 1 Corinthians 9, 15 through 23. So let me read this passage for us this morning. It says, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I will have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I, might win, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. And to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. This is the word of God. So I want us to walk through these these few verses here. I want want to just take a closer look, zoom in on these verses, explain what they're talking about, and then we'll walk through a few points of application. So verse 15, let's look at verse 15. He says, nor am I writing to secure any of these provisions, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my grounds for boasting. Paul, like I said, just made such a convincing argument in the, the first 14 verses that he should receive these provisions, these, he should be able to hold on to his rights to get married or to be paid for what he does, that they could be convinced that he's writing them to try to hold on to these these rights now. And he says, that is not what I'm doing. In fact, he says he would rather die. Paul sees receiving pay as depriving him of the right for boasting in the gospel. And this is the main right that Paul desires to hold on to more than quitting his second job, more than getting married. The right is so important to Paul that he would rather die than have it taken away. He is willing to give up his right to living sooner than he is right to giving away than, than giving his right away to boast the gospel, boast in the gospel. So what is so what is his his boast in the gospel? What does Paul mean by his boast in the gospel? Paul's about to explain that in the coming verses. So verses 16 and 17. Paul says to simply preach the gospel is not grounds for boasting. He says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. That's, it's not just preaching the gospel. He says, Necessity is laid on him. He's compelled. He has to do that. It's not an option for him. He has to do that. It's not, it's, it's not something he's taking up. It's like, oh, like, good for Paul. He's willingly doing this. He's like, No, I am controlled. I have to do this. I know I have to do this. And verse 17, he explains this necessity this compulsion his his having to preach the gospel he says for if i do this of my own will i have i, I have a reward but i i but if not of my own will i'm entrusted with a stewardship so that this you know this hypothetical if i do this of my own will i have a reward if i don't do this of this of my own will i'm entrusted as a steward what he's implying there is He's not just pre- he, His preaching the gospel is not willingly. He's saying, I am compelled. I am controlled. I know I must preach the gospel. I am a steward. He is making the point that he is not willingly preaching. He is ne- under necessity. He feels like he must do that. And the way he describes this necessity is as a steward. He wants to be a steward of the gospel. Now, that's not necessarily like we always use that term. Like I think a lot of the times when you use the term stewardship, you think about just like taking good care of the things that you own. And that's not necessarily the idea that Paul is getting at. It's this idea of handing an inheritance from the one who is giving the inheritance to the one who is receiving the inheritance. It's taking care of an inheritance, passing it from the one who die, and they were to give an inheritance to their benefactor, the wealth that, that that heir would receive until that heir has come to a, an appropriate age where they are to receive it. So Paul sees himself as a recipient of the gospel. He knows that the gospel is for him, right? That he is an heir of all of the promises of Christ. If there's anyone in the Bible that we can hold up as an example of extreme transformation in Christ, it's the Apostle Paul, right? We use that example all the time. He was hunting down Christians and then he was knocked off of his horse on the way to Damascus and he was blinded and he was totally transformed. Paul is an ex- a, a, a clear example of a grace of God transforming a life from death to life. But So he knows he's a recipient of the gospel, but he doesn't just purely view himself as a recipient of the gospel. He views himself as holding this inheritance and that he wants to make the most out of that opportunity where he was, he's given this as a steward that he would pass on this gift of the gospel to those who would receive it. He is a steward. He's been given this to pass on what he's been given. This is similar to what Jesus describes in Matthew 25 about the the parable of the talents where a master goes away and he gives his three servants each some money, these talents, and two of the guys go and multiply the talents that were given uh, from the master. They make more money with the money that was given by the master. But one guy wants to hide that 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 money that was given to him. So he just buries it. And when the master comes back, he says, See, I kept it safe. I didn't do anything with it. I just kept it safe and and buried' And even what that guy has is taken away from him because he didn't give what he or he didn't multiply what he was given. That's the same sentiment that Paul is is getting at here as a steward. There's a responsibility from what he's been given to by by the Lord in the gospel to go give it out as a steward of the gospel. He puts it another way in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. Earlier in the book, he writes this: He says, According to the grace of God given me, But it will be revealed by fire and, the fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. So Paul says he has like a skilled master builder laid the foundation of the gospel, in each of their churches and in each of their lives. He has come and preached the gospel, and they've received it, and that's what they have now, right? But what they do with the rest of their lives is that they, that we, and what we do with the rest of our lives if, after we receive the gospel? What are we building on top of that? What are we using our lives for? Are we using it for eternal significance, building things that will last through the fire, like all of those precious stones? Are we building on it with wood and hay and straw and things that, as soon as we walk into eternity, will not matter at all anymore, and they will just burn up? And you will enter into eternity with just a foundation, nothing more. That's a wasted life. So when Paul says he has necessity laid on him to preach the gospel, he's saying, I can't live a wasted life. I can't let my life be used for nothing that will have any eternal significance. So when he says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel... He's saying, I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to be like the, the, the servant who goes and hides the talents that I've been given. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He, there's necessity on him as a steward. So in verse 18, he explains, he says, what then is my reward? that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so not to make use of my right in the gospel. So his reward for boasting does not come through preaching the gospel. He must do that. He is a steward. His reward comes because he is willing to lay every other joy, every other right aside. Because he sees the joy and the right of preaching the gospel. He sees the joy of others coming to know Christ as so much greater than any other joy in his life that he could hold on to or that he could chase. That is the supreme joy for Paul. So he is willing to present it and remove obstacles so that, that, that others would be able to receive it. See, Paul is, Paul is going to talk more about all the rights that he's given up in this next paragraph. He's not just giving up rights for the sake of it, and just to suffer, right? He's not like, oh, I'm just going to not be married just for the sake of, look at me, I'm willing to suffer this much. Oh, sorry, lost my earpiece here. He's not not suffering just for the sake of suffering. Paul is suffering. He's strategically looking at his life and saying, what obstacles can I remove? What things can I lay down? What what way can I pave the path more clearly so that more people would believe in Christ? He's laying down his rights specifically because he wants more people to be one to Christ. That is his supreme goal. That is what he wants more than anything else. And that is his boast that he can demonstrate in his life. That is the most important thing to him by far. So down in verse 19, he explains more ways that he sacrifices his rights. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. He's free from all in the sense that, uh, and he'll explain this uh, in the next few verses, how he's entering into people's culture and lives, and he's laying aside his own preferences, but in Christ, he's free from having to think about what other people think of him. He, uh, the only person he, has to con- he is obliged to consider, uh, whether they're, they're pleased with him or not, he, the, only person he ha- the only opinion he has to care about in that regard is Christ, right? As long as he knows he is doing what's pleasing to Christ, that's all he's got to worry about. He doesn't have to worry about pleasing other people. He doesn't fear about that. that, that his, his, his only audience is Christ in that sense, and that gives him freedom to not live in consideration of what other people think about him. Yet Paul gives up this right. This is not something that Paul holds on to. He says, though I am free to all, I have made myself a servant to all. Again, he's not trying to do this to build himself up or to get a better reputation or to be more well-liked. He's entering into people's lives and becoming more like them to remove obstacles from the gospel so that more people would believe. So the, or as he says here, so that I would win more. So he goes on to explain how he, how he sacrifices, how he does that. In verse 20, he talks about, Uh, becoming like the Jews and becoming becoming like those who are under the law. And those two groups are synonymous, right? The Jews were under the ritual law. They had ritual law all over in their practices of their daily life, and it was very important to them. So Paul would enter into the synagogues and ritually observe as much as he could of, of Jewish law and Jewish customs so that when he's preaching the gospel, the Jewish people that he was preaching to we're not thinking about how Paul wasn't following their customs and being offended by that. If he was going to give them any opportunity for offense, the only thing that they could possibly be offended by was Paul preaching, was the gospel that Paul was preaching. That was the only thing he wanted to leave as an opportunity for them to be offended by. So he was willing to follow all of their rituals, Think about the book of Galatians, right? The book of Galatians is full of Paul saying that you don't need to be circumcised. Physical circumcision has no value. Following the ritual of physical circumcision is not something that Christians need to be super concerned about. But at the same time, while the Christians don't need that, like that's not a part of the gospel, what does he call Timothy to do? As Timothy comes with him on his journeys, as he's going into synagogues and preaching the gospel there... He asked Timothy to be circumcised before he goes on those journeys with them. Why? So that he removes an obstacle in preaching. So that Timothy would become like a Jew to the Jews so that they could reach more Jews. He's willing to enter in. And the same way, he became like those outside the law the Gentiles, so he could win them. Now, Paul clarifies that he's not outside the law in the sense that he is no, he doesn't, no longer cares about obedience to Christ. It's not like going and sinning with people who are caught in their sin, like going and indulging the sin that people are trapped in. That's not, that's not the same. That's not what Paul is doing. He's not saying, oh, I'll become like those outside of law, and I won't care about Living a life that's ungodly. No, he's still under the law of Christ. And he's still going to be obedient to Christ. But again, he's entering into this life uh, that, is, that is outside of the law of Christ in order to share the gospel with them. A great example of this is what he talks about later in 1 Corinthians 10. In the next chapter, he says, If an unbelieving person invites you into their house, go into their house. And eat whatever food they have. And don't ask too many questions, he says. Don't ask too many questions. You don't have to ask where the meat came from. Now, if they tell you the meat came from uh, an offering to an idol, you shouldn't eat. But that's not for your sake. You don't need to worry about whether it was offered to an idol. The idol's nothing. The meat is given from God. You can still eat it with thankfulness. But you do it for the sake of showing them that you don't support idol worship. You're doing it for their sake, not for yours. But he's saying... If you can, just go in and eat what they give you and don't ask too many questions. Just go be a part of their life and, and, and enter into how a Gentile lives and enter into their home and eat a meal with them so that you can be like them and show them Christ. Then in verse 22, Paul makes the same statement about the weak. He became weak to the weak. Now, this would have been right in the face of everything that the Corinthians were were dealing with, right? The Corinthians were trying to use Christianity. So many of their disputes were where they were trying to use Christianity to kind of elevate themselves above each other and saying like, oh, I have the superior spiritual gift. Oh, I have the superior teacher. Oh, I... I have the superior st- status that I eat more in communion or whatever. And they're like looking down on one another and trying to use Christianity as a, 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 a platform to elevate themselves. But Paul says he becomes, he becomes like the weak to win the weak. He sees his ministry in Christ as, con- as being willing to condescend to other people, to, be unpo- to, to, be, to sit with the unpopular, to speak with the uneducated, to, to go into lives that are messy and, uh, and not clean, he becomes like the weak to the weak so that he might win the weak because he's compassionate. He wants to win, win the weak. And then Paul gives his bottom line statement. He says, in verse 22, he says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And we recognize the value of this. Think about how we send out our missionaries, right? What our missionaries do should be a greater example, like a more specific example of what we try to do even in our own lives, right? When we send out missionaries, we send them to go get cultural and language acquisition training. And we do that for a long period of time. So they'll go and they'll get cultural and language acquisition. They'll learn how to learn people, Right? And then after they go and do that cultural language acquisition, they'll be sent into a culture and they'll learn the trade language. Then they'll be sent into a more specific people group and they'll learn another language of whatever people group they're in. And then when they're in that people group, they'll learn how those people live and what those people like. They'll become like those people in every way that, they is, that is permissible so that there would be no obstacle for the gospel other than the gospel itself. Because the gospel is offensive, right? But they're removing all those obstacles. They're living in those people, becoming like those people. Think about the Jones living in a hut, in a, in a tribe in Papua New Guinea. Because they want to be like the pay tribe as much as they can be like the pay tribe so that they might win the pay tribe. That's an example of what Paul is trying to do in the lives of Jews and Gentiles and everyone. He's trying to become like all people so that he might win some. Why? Why is he willing to lay down all this? Why does he care so much? Why is it so important that he would win more people? Why, Why is that such a value to them? He says it in verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in in its blessings. Paul loves the gospel. Paul's heart is full when he thinks of all that Christ has done for him. He loves that God sent Jesus, his son, to live a perfect life and die on the cross to pay for his sins. He loves That he has been invited into a right relationship with God. He loves that Jesus rose from the grave... And gives hope to all that those who believe in him, that they will also raise with Jesus never to die again. He loves that he has hope of eternal life with God. He loves that he has hope of a day when his suffering will end. He loves that he has been loved and adopted by God. He loves that God has sent his spirit to dwell in him. He loves that he has joy and peace that cannot be taken away. He loves that he is united in divine love with those who believe in God. Those are the blessings of the gospel. And he says that that love for the gospel is exponentially multiplied through sharing in the blessings of that gospel with those who have believed through the proclamation of his word. Those who he shared the gospel with when he looks around and worships with the people that he's like, I remember when that person was changed from life to death. The, I, the, his joy in all of those things, all this those beautiful promises of Christ are, are multiplied and are enriched, that they're made greater by, by worshiping with those who he has preached the gospel to. He wants to share in all of those blessings with them. The blessings of the gospel are not just those that we have received personally. Our love for what Jesus has done greatly multiplies With each new person that we see transformed by it. And if you're like me, the thought of your heart growing more and more full of the gospel, of the joy of the gospel, is thrilling. Don't you want your heart to even think about how much joy we have now in the gospel and to think that the Lord could multiply that joy, that that joy could well up even greater and overflow even more. I want my joy in the gospel to increase and to multiply. Do you? So, how can we, like Paul, maximize the blessings of the gospel that we experience in our life? How can we share in the blessings of the gospel with those who are lost? I'm gonna give a few, I'm gonna give a few calls on how we can grow in our sharing of the gospel for lost. First, take on the identity of a steward. We can't just view our relationship with the gospel, purely as people who have received it. God has given this gift to you so that you could pass it on. There, are, there is someone out there who God intends to believe through your delivering of the gospel to them. You should expect that there is someone out there who God intends to believe through your sharing of the gospel with them. You are a steward to pass that gospel gift to them. If you want to think about what being a steward looks looks like, we've been preaching through Proverbs in youth group, and that's where I'm thinking about right now. So I love the picture of the ant in Proverbs 6. I think the ant is a lot like the steward. So let me talk about the ant for a a second, and let me compare him to the steward. The ant is humble, right? I think a lot of the times we're intimidated to preach the gospel because we think we need some great spiel or educated, educated argument or something like that but the ant is humble. The ant is a lowly creature. The ant is simple. The ant just goes out and does simple work. And we're called to just do the simple work of going and sharing what we know in Christ, just sharing the simple gospel. It's a humble task. It's not lofty or unattainable. It's something that every believer has the ability to go out and do, to go share what they've known about Christ. The ant needs no boss. He's inwardly motivated, and thinking about Paul, right? He he shares that same sentiment. He says, "I have necessity laid on me; I must preach the gospel." There's a sense where he that there's an inner motivation where you just have to share what you have been given. The ant works in the summer, while life gives plenty of opportunities. Right now, you are in the summer of your life. If you're sitting here, if you have health to stand, if you have a voice to speak, you are in the summer of your lifetime. You have opportunity right now all around you. And the ant looks at that summer as a time to go do the work. While it's summer, they're doing the work. They're not wasting any opportunity they've been given to go do the work that they need to do. They're going to go out and do it during the summer. They take advantage of every opportunity. Think about Paul. He's taking advantage of every opportunity, right? He's strategically laying down rights so that in every relationship with as many people as he possibly can, he's going to share the gospel that he might win some because he sees so much opportunity out there, right? The ant sees opportunity and it works when there's opportunity. The ant knows the winter is coming. Which means the ant understands there will be a day when there will be no more work to be done. You will die and there will be be no more opportunity for you to share the gospel. All that will be finished. And whatever you've done in your life, that will be what you have gathered. The ant is gathering because it knows winter is coming. So if you want to be a fruitful steward, I'd say consider the ant in Proverbs 6. I think that's a great example of what being a steward looks like. So, first, take on the identity of a steward. Second, be willing to suffer to take on the suffering of a soul winner. Um, I, 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 in full, uh, in full admission here, uh, th- our family has been ravaged by the flu the last few weeks, uh, and I, I did a lot of preparation for this uh, over the last couple days. So, I, I don't, I, I have a lot of quotes coming. Uh, so, first of all, bear with me as I read a lot. Second of all, I, I don't know, Michael, I know he was working, oh, it looks like, yes, he's got them on the slides. So, thank you for putting that all together this morning, Michael. But I'm borrowing a ton from Charles Spurgeon here. As I was going over this, I was finishing up, I was like, I wonder how, how Charles Spurgeon's Soul Winner, which is an excellent book, I highly recommend I wonder what it has to say about this topic and it had a lot to say. So I'm going to read a lot of different Spurgeon quotes for you this morning um, on, on uh, what, how we can uh, multiply, how we can, how we can preach the gospel more effectively. So we have to take on the, the sufferings of a soul winner. First, taking on the suffering, suffering of a soul winner means being willing to make life harder for yourself to win some. Spurgeon writes this. You must go into the fire... If you were to pull others out of it. And you will have to dive into the floods if you were to draw others out of the water. You cannot work a fire escape without feeling the scorch of conflagration. Nor nor man a lifeboat without being covered with the waves. When you enter into life's loss, they're messy, they're full of unrepentant sin and all the consequences of it. And when you go into those lives, you're going to feel the scorch and you're going to feel the waves. You're going to have to enter into uncomfortable and hard circumstances in people's lives. In order to be a good soul winner, you have to be willing to enter in to where people are at. And in, in entering into, people, into people's lives where they're at, you have to be willing to change in ways that are uncomfortable to you. That's, that's my second point on taking on uh, the suffering of a soul winner. You have to be willing to change in ways that make you feel uncomfortable. Spurgeon writes this, men are usually won to Christ by suitable instruments. And this suitability often lies in the power to sympathize. A key opens a door because it fits the wards of the lock. An artist's address touches a heart because it meets the state of the heart. Our sympathy for the lost should drive us to enter into their lives as Christ entered into ours. What does that look like? How do we sympathize and get to be like people so that we can share the loss with them? Here are a few ways that I thought of. Get on the floor and play with children so that you can preach the gospel to them. Go to dinner in a house that you aren't comfortable in, so you can preach the gospel there. Bear grief that is not your own for someone who is broken, so you can preach the gospel there. Make friends with someone you deeply disagree with, so you can preach the gospel there. Do something you don't like to do, that someone else loves to do, so you can preach the gospel to them. Do everything that you can to enter into people's lives to share the gospel with them. Become the key that fits the lock in their life, so you can remove any obstacle of the gospel and more effectively preach it to them. So we must be stewards We must have the identity of the stewards. We must take on the suffering of the soul winner. We must, third, crave the reward of the soul winner or the blessings of the gospel, right? There is reward to be had in soul winning. Think about it like a bounty hunter. That's how Charles Spurgeon describes it. He says, you know, when there's a fugitive on the loose and there's a reward posted for somebody, men will come out of the woodworks to go look for this guy because they're looking for that big cash reward. They're going to go find the fugitive and go bring him to justice. And he says this. I love the way he puts it. He says, thank the Lord that that while burglars and assassins, there's plenty of burglars and assassins to bring to justice. There are far more sinners who are in need of being brought to the mercy of God that we can seek the reward for. There is so much opportunity for us to go get that reward, to see that every lost person in our life is an opportunity to go seek the rewards of a soul winner. What are the rewards of a soul winner? Let me give you a few. We are rewarded in soul winning because we see God working in us in a way that we never thought possible. Spurgeon writes this. He said, how can God bless such, a f- such feeble instrumentality? This is the feeling Of most who addict themselves to the blessed craft of fishing for men. So, if you want to marvel at the power of God in your life, moving in ways that you haven't seen before, go share the gospel. Because you will see God show up and bless you with His power to share the gospel. And that's that's a feeling that soul winners are addicted to—to just seeing God move and and change people's hearts in a way that they didn't think was possible through their proclamation. Secondly, soul winners are rewarded with greater assurance of their own faith. Spurgeon writes this. He says, when when he has gone over the old, old story of the cross, weeping, penitent, and has last gripped the hand of one who could say, I do believe, I will believe that Jesus died for me. I say he has a reward in the process through which his own mind has gone. Virgin is describing sitting with someone the moment when they say, Yes, I do believe. I do need Jesus. I need to repent from my sin. I want to change. That moment, he says, there's blessing not only for the individual now who is accepting Christ, but the person sitting beside them gets an assurance that where they get to, where they get to rehearse the same miracle that has already happened in their own life. They get to grow in a confidence. When you look at God in the moment transforming a person from life to death, it is hard to doubt the gospel that you believe in. There's little room for doubt in the life of a soul winner because they see clearly the evidences of the power of the gospel. Soul winners are rewarded in gratitude and affection for those we bring to Christ. Again, Spurgeon writes, a mother feels great delight in her her children, for an intense love comes with natural relationships. But there is still a deeper love connected with spiritual kinship, a love which lasts through life and will continue into eternity. For even in heaven, each servant of the Lord will say, here I am and the children whom thou hast given me. Jesus talks about this. He says there will, no one will be given or taken in marriage in heaven. Our, our earthly fam, familial relationships will have little or no significance in heaven outside of their spiritual significance. But these spiritual children, these, these children that you bring into heaven, we will for eternity have an affection and a gratitude for those spiritual children that we bring in with us. That is eternal. And imagine the sweetness of not only waiting for eternity for that, but weekly attending worship services with these children in the gospel. That is the blessing that Paul is laying down all of his rights to receive and finally, we are rewarded most greatly. This is my last point of application before I close. It says we are rewarded most greatly in soul winning by the pleasure of God. Spurgeon writes this, but the richest reward lies in pleasing God and causing the Redeemer to see the travail of His soul. That Jesus should have His reward is worth the eternal. Uh, is worth of the eternal Father, but it is marvelous that we should be employed by the Father to give Christ the purchase of his agonies. Simply said, God has allowed us the privilege of delivering Christ the glories due his name when we preach the gospel to the lost. When it says that there's great joy in heaven over sinners being saved, there's great joy in the presence of the angels. It's not just the angels who are having the great joy. It's in the presence of the angels. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit celebrating in, the, in rejoicing over the salvation of a sinner. So when we preach the gospel to the lost, we get to deliver pleasure to God. We get to deliver the glory of the gospel due Christ back to him saying, Lord, yes, You have saved, and here's another one who has believed in your name. Here's another one of your children who who have believed in your name. Paul does it all for the sake of the gospel that he would share in its blessings with them. So in conclusion, uh, Christ coming to church, I believe there is great joy in the gospel waiting for us in 2023. Would God make us into a church that is zealous to share the gospel with lost? Let's pray.